Glad to see you again. It's good to be back. We have a lot of information to cover this week as well. Our topic is Martin Luther, and this is one of several paintings that we have of Luther. There are about five of them, and I'm going to mention the person who makes this, named Lucas Cranach, in just a moment. Next, or I should say, last week, was talking about the different movements within Catholicism. And one of the movements within Catholicism that I ended on was humanism. And humanism is this movement where Catholics are focusing on the biblical text, focusing on the biblical languages. There's a very famous expression in German, without humanism there is no reformation. So, I want to start with that this morning and make a few clarifications on the reformations in general. And notice here that I say reformations plural, that really does change how we look at the Reformation or the Reformations. In the past, it was common to say the Protestant Reformation, so Protestant as well as singular. Today, most scholars say European Reformations. So it's not just Protestant because Catholicism reforms as well, and then it's not singular, it's plural. So I'm going to talk in those categories of reformations as opposed to one reformation. And so what we're going to look at this morning is Martin Luther, and Martin Luther is part of one particular form of reformation. And even within Lutheranism, while Luther is still alive, there are a series of other Lutheran reformations taking place. So for points of clarity, the first one is that as much as we look to Martin Luther as the originator of brand new ideas, as someone who is innovative, who basically just flies out from heaven with the truth, I want to challenge that assumption. I personally don't think that's the case. I don't think that Martin Luther had any new ideas originally. I think that, as I'll mention a little later, he was able to move forward with ideas that others had had for hundreds of years in a very special way. But in terms of him just arriving out of God's hands, God opens up his hands, and then finally, 1,500 years after Jesus, we finally landed on the truth. That's a really naive idea that's not really supported by church history. Because as I mentioned last week, we have many, many individuals as well as movements and institutions that are seeking to reform the church and have always been intending to reform the church. So the reformations are part of a much larger desire to reform the church, all within the Catholic world. The second is that the reformations are taking place across multiple locations, It's all within Europe. That's why we call it the European Reformations. These Reformations are not taking place in Asia or in Latin America. They're taking place in Europe. And one thing that we'll notice is that Martin Luther had people who disagreed with him and, in fact, hated his very existence among the Protestant tribe of Christians, not just from within Catholicism. And The last point under that is there's no such thing as the Protestant church like there is the Catholic church. So the Catholic church is the largest tradition within Christianity today, and it has been since the very beginning. There are lots of different orders within Catholicism, parishes and so forth, but 
There's one Catholic church, but notice that does not have parity, parity in the Protestant world. There is no such thing as a Protestant church. There are simply Protestant churches because we Protestants have never agreed with each other. <laughs> Here's a quotation. I'm not going to read all of this, but the point is to draw out point number two that we Protestants do not get along. We have never gotten along from the very beginning. And immediately after Luther post if he did post the 95 Theses in 1517 on the the church, immediately he has other groups that we now classify as Protestants. At that time, they had other names, and I'm not going to go into all of the names, but here's just a few of those, Anabaptists, Spiritualists, Winglians, so forth. All of these are Protestant movements, but they are movements that draw some inspiration from Luther, but they have their own ideas, they have their own agendas, and they disagree vigorously with Luther. And so I'm going to read the bottom part of this quotation. Here began the unending line of would-be reformers of the Reformation who have ever since confronted the original and later versions of Protestantism with their own allegedly truer interpretation of Holy Scripture. And last week, I had one slide with a cat coming out of the bag, and that's what we experienced around 500 years ago for the first time that people have access to the Bible and begin reading the Bible, and they come to very different types of conclusions. And in fact, there's a very famous expression, goes back more than 1,500 years ago. There was a monk in France, and this is what he says, as many readers of Scripture as there are, That's how many interpretations of Scripture there are. That was 1,500 years ago. He nailed it. That's 1,000 years before the Reformation. We see that to be working itself out, which is why last week I mentioned within the Protestant churches we have 50,000 denominations. Because another person comes along and says, I have a clearer understanding of how to read the Bible. I can read the Bible better than you can. The Spirit speaks to me more so than He speaks to you. And an example of that, which we won't go into too much detail, but it's in 1529. It's called the Marburg Colloquy. It takes place in Germany. Martin Luther never leaves Germany once the Reformation begins because he would be killed. So he stays within Germany. He is always under the protection of a lord. That's the only way he could have his life guaranteed. But he goes to this colloquy, and it's a who's who of very famous European reformers. And the most famous besides Luther is going to be Ulrich Zwingli, who comes from Switzerland. And they meet, and there are several others as well. And the goal is for them to unite, because they all come to the conclusion, we disagree with a lot of things that we see traditionally, And we agree on some very important ideas and theological positions, but we disagree also on many other things. And so there was a prince who wanted to bring together all of these reformers, and he said, if we can unite together, then we have a better chance of surviving. They come together, and over four days, October 1 to 4th in 1529, And infamously, it ends because Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli disagree on how to understand the Lord's Supper. And Luther, who has a potty mouth, 
He is a deeply flawed human being, as we all are. He was very prone to anger. He would curse out people. He would write books cursing out people in the very title. So this was pretty common in the 1500s. But Luther was extremely aggressive. He was a very aggressive, opinionated person. And overbearing, uh, very black and white type of thinker in some ways. And so he called Zwingli a heretic. And Zwingli, of course, did the same thing to him. And it was all, for the most part, over how to understand the Lord's Supper. And so, just very briefly, want to make mention before they have this encounter in 1529, there was a series of books that Zwingli had written against Luther, and Luther had written against Zwingli about how to understand the Lord's Supper. This is what these guys do. So, 1525, Luther publishes, or sorry, Zwingli on true and false religion, and of course, he says Luther's view is stupid. And then after that, there's another publication by Zwingli. Then Luther's going to respond, and his title, that these words of Christ, this is my body, still stand firm against the fanatics. And by the fanatics, he's talking about Zwingli. And then they have another one, more exchanges and so forth. But throughout their lives, Luther and Zwingli despise each other. And when Luther finally hears that Zwingli is dead because Zwingli is going to die in battle in 1531. And when he dies in battle, uh, Luther infamously says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But this takes us to a, a bigger point, not just on the Lord's Supper. The bigger issue, which I've talked about, is the, the cat out of the bag, is how do you determine if Luther is right and Zwingli is right? And when it comes to the Lord's Supper, I'll just give you a nutshell of their arguments. Luther says that Christ can be anywhere he wants to be at all times, even though he has a physical body now that he can't get rid of. And so when the Lord's Supper occurs, for Luther, Christ is fully present. He's physically present, not just spiritually present. Zwingli, actually, uh, Baptist theology gets its theology of the Lord's Supper from Zwingli. So Zwingli is a spiritualist. He says that Christ is not physically present. Christ can't be physically present. He's in heaven. How can he come down on earth? And Luther says, this is stupid. With ridiculous reasoning. He can do whatever he wants to do. He's God. And so that's the real difference between these two when it comes to that topic. For Luther, Christ is physically present at the Lord's Supper. For Zwingli, Christ is only spiritually present. It's simply a memorial. The bigger question is, how do we determine which one of these guys is right? Because guess what? Both of them claim to be basing their views on the Bible. And guess what as well? They have lots of biblical passages. Anyone can do that. The easiest thing in the world to do is to find a biblical passage to support anything you want to do or believe. It's very simple to do so. So, this is the bigger issue there. And I'm going to start reading toward half the way down. We see here the fundamental difficulty that the Reformation faced. The absence of any authoritative interpreter of Scripture that could give rulings on contested matters of biblical interpretation. So do you understand that? The absence of any authoritative interpreter of Scripture. We have this really clearly within Catholicism. You have a group that has a definitive reading on any particular biblical passage or at least a doctrine. When it comes to the Protestant realm, we simply do not have this ability. There is no way 
that one person can step back amongst all of the others who think that they have the right reading of Scripture, and they can say this is the definitive reading on that. All you have are individuals and then bodies that say our reading is better than your reading. Well, why? Well, it just seems that way to us. The question was not simply whether Luther or Zwingli was right. It was whether the emerging Protestant movement possessed the means to resolve such questions of biblical interpretation. It did not, and it has not, and it does not. If the Bible had ultimate authority, who had the right to interpret the Bible and therefore determine its meaning? That is the million-dollar question that still eludes us today in the 21st century. So, we're going to go back to these points of clarity. We're on number three now. The formation of various confessions in the late 16th century ended any hope that the different Protestant churches would unite. So, I mentioned Marburg Colloquy 1529. That was an attempt by the German princes, who had become Lutherans, to unite the different Protestant groups in order to survive and to grow. That did not come into fruition. And what happens instead is a whole series of these little groups start making their own confessions. And when they start making their own confessions, they have their doctrine hardened and solidified, institutionalized, and therefore that ends any attempt at reconciliation. And so what do I mean by that? Well, now you've got Anabaptists who are writing their own theology and saying this is actually the right way to read Scripture. And then you have Lutherans who are writing their views on how to read Scripture. Then you have certain reform groups. Then you have Anglicans. And the list goes on and on and on all throughout the 1500s. And so this ended any ability of these groups to come together in unity. The fourth, we traditionally have privileged theologians when it comes to the Reformation. However, there were many, many other key players. There's painters, there's printers, artists, political leaders. All of these were just as important, if not more important, than the actual theologians, the monks who became professors, those types. No, these others were extremely important. I started with a picture of Martin Luther. That was from Lucas Cranach. Lucas Cranach moved to Wittenberg, which is where Luther lived. And they were very good friends. I was privileged uh, to go just a few weeks ago to Lucas Cranach's house and to see there's a lot of his work there and you get to see how his life was like in the early 1500s. But these types of paintings, woodcuts, engravings changed everything. It wasn't just Luther's ideas. And this is why I was mentioning at the beginning, I don't think Luther had any original ideas in the beginning the difference is, the reason why his kernel popped is because he had Lucas Cranach, because he had a series of printers, because there were others, German princesses, who supported his ideas, they publicized them, and they went into the wider world. Continuing on, just a couple more. Number five here. So, why did Luther's kernel pop? Why did the Reformation become associated with Luther and not with Jan Hus 100 years in the Czech Republic. Not why 200 years with John Wycliffe in England. Why not, and you could go down this list, it's for hundreds of years, all throughout Europe. Why is it that we associate the Reformation with Luther and his time period and not others? I think there are several reasons, but I'm just going to give four. So one, 
is these Protestant groups that emerge, they capitalize much more on laypersons than the movements before. And so it's the, the movement that's going to happen through these lay people as opposed to these religious leaders. The second is these reformations associated with Luther and others tap into the burgeoning publishing enterprise. I mentioned last week, every book that exists, including all of the Bibles, are written by hand. That's the only way that you can make a copy of any book until the mid-1400s. So just two generations before Luther. There's no way that you're going to have a widespread revolution in that regard without this publishing enterprise that's going to come into existence during Luther's time. The third is that these new reformers are aligning with nationalist sentiments, changing times. So Germany is coming into existence as its own nation. England is coming into its existence as its own nation. Lots of changes taking place socially and politically. And the last one, which is one of the most important as well, Luther never would have been able to do what he did if he did not have leaders who supported him. And specifically, I'm talking about dukes and princesses, governors, kings. There's lots of different ways to refer to them, but they are the ones who are mostly responsible for everything. Luther, he was not killed. Why? He should have been killed, and he would have been killed because he was under the territory of a guy that's named Frederick. Frederick was the, we call him a a duke or prince. There's different ways to refer to him, but we could say he is a prince, and he was the one who protected Luther when Luther was going to be killed on several occasions. Did he ever support Luther? No. Theologically, no. He lived and died a Catholic. He had a a relic collection of 19,000 relics. He loved Luther... For one reason, because he opened a university in Wittenberg in 1502. Luther comes along, and now he is famous. And guess what? When you have a famous professor, you have students coming from all over the world. What do students bring? Money. And so all of this is happening in Wittenberg. It becomes the most famous university in Europe. It's the one where all the rising stars are teaching and so Frederick protects Luther, not because of theological reasons, but because of financial reasons. He brings support, he brings all kinds of enterprise into Wittenberg. Therefore, he's going to protect him at all costs. He does, and that's the reason why we're here this morning, is really because of Frederick and his desire to make sure that the university is in good hands, that there are good professors, that there are students who are coming in. Six, theological ecclesial infighting. And this is going to put, really, evangelism on a standstill for hundreds of years. So what's interesting is the Catholic Church had been going out into all the world for all times, but especially in the late 1400s. For Protestants, they do not be, because they are fighting amongst themselves, they do not go explore mission for hundreds of years. It's really not until, I mean, let's say around 300 years or so before there are real Protestant missions. And all of this because of this infighting that takes place and killing within the Protestant realm. And we could go into great detail, but we don't have time. 
this morning. The last point, and then we're going to move into Luther's life specifically, is that we have to realize we do ourselves a disservice when we refer to what took place as the Protestant Reformation because that assumes that only Protestants were interested in reform. All of the Protestant reformers were Catholic. They didn't just come up with this idea of reform out of the blue because they had hundreds and hundreds of years of other Catholics who were seeking to reform. So the Protestant movement comes out of Catholicism. All of its models, all of the theology had already existed within Catholicism. That's why I mentioned Luther doesn't have anything new. He's simply going back to the tradition. It's all in the tradition. In the biblical tradition, and the tradition of the theologians before his time, they'd all said these different types of things, but he pulls them together. And when it comes to the Catholic Church itself, is it makes all types of reforms as a result of these reformations that are taking place. I mentioned Erasmus last week, who puts together the first Greek New Testament in 1516. He is part of this great reform movement. He is Catholic, dies Catholic, and then a whole series of others after that. And so there were lots of abuses taking place within the Catholic Church. And guess what? The Catholic Church made a large measure of reform to many of these abuses. One of these that Luther kept pointing out is, well, our priests are not well educated. And what do you know, after this, a very famous council takes place while Luther is still alive, and this council seeks to make some of these reforms. This is within the Catholic Church. And they create seminaries. So I teach at a seminary. It's as a result of these reforms within the Catholic movement that I have a job. Seminaries are created because we need to train priests and so forth better. And then the last thing here is we like to really emphasize the differences between Protestants and Catholics, and there are lots of differences. But the essentials have never changed, ever. Never. Ever. So what are these essentials? The Trinity, Nicene Creed, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Luther talks about this. He says, I have no issues whatsoever with Rome. I agree 100% with them on these foundational issues. And so what I want us to think about this morning is as much as we emphasize the differences to recognize we have much more in common with the Catholic Church than we have differences with them. And specifically, we get that from the Reformers themselves who were all Catholic and would have remained Catholic if it wasn't for some other situations that would have occurred. So, those are just some points of clarification. Maybe they'll be helpful in the next few weeks. I showed this image last week of Europe before the Reformations. And these different colors represent different things. But here is what it looks like after these Reformations is now, whereas we had one body, one Catholic church, everyone was Catholic, Now we have these different colors representing the different strands of these reformations. So we have Lutheran strands, and even then, there is no such thing as Lutheran. There are Lutherans. There's no such thing as a Reformed Christian. There are Reformed Christians, because there are so many differences and so forth. I'm going to pause for a moment. I've given you a lot of information, a lot of things to think about. 
as was mentioned this morning, I'm going to send this to Matt, and it will be available to anyone who wants to look over it, because I know I've covered a lot in a very short amount of time. We're now about halfway through our morning talk, and so I want to switch from the Reformations in general to look at Martin Luther in particular. I know several of you have watched a movie on Luther, a documentary, and that's all very helpful, and I will, because of that, just give some different overviews of Luther's life, but I want to start with his humanity. As I mentioned, he was a deeply flawed human being, as we all are deeply flawed. I could list a whole series of his weaknesses and his vices, which he himself talks about just as much as anyone, but he had constant issues with anger. He was a very angry person. His friends talk about that. When he got married, everyone was very excited because they thought, well, at least if he's married, his wife is going to calm him down. It didn't take. Uh, He was just as angry married as he was not being married. He was uh, one who was, probably because of his anger, very quick to point out people's faults. He's very judgmental. He had a really bad mouth. He was a cursing theologian, loved to curse. He loved to drink. A lot of people think he drank way too much. He would have his students come over every night, and he would have the equivalent eight, nine, ten glasses of beer for dinner. So that wasn't that uncommon in Germany at the time, but he drank a lot. His favorite beer was his wife, so he married a nun, and she was the one who brewed the beer. And (laughs) everywhere he would go throughout Germany, he always had to make sure he had a bunch of her beer because he didn't like the way the beer tasted in the other villages. So he drank a lot. He was very generous with his money, to a fault, he would give everything he had. Um, he had a very good salary. By the time he died, he was making 400 ducats a year, which is a very, very handsome salary. But he had a very large place. People are always coming in. They never had enough money. When he died in 1546, he had his wife, Katerina, and then four children, and they basically lived in poverty because all of the money was coming in while he was alive. He didn't make any money from his writings. He wrote almost 400 books or pamphlets, apart from translating the Bible. Didn't really make any money off of that. The printers were the ones who made the money. So, very bad-tempered, very angry person, but a very loving, generous person. He was resentful. He would have an argument with you, and that could be the end of the relationship. He was very quick to call out people publicly. The list goes on and on and on, but I'll just stop with that. In the midst of all of those things, of course, God is always at work. God uses whatever you give him. He doesn't care. So we think of Luther as this perfect model of a man. He was a deeply flawed man, very human, had some very intriguing ideas, and later in life, he becomes very hateful, writes very hateful things, specifically toward Jews, which we might have time to talk about tonight, or sorry, a little later this morning, but Exactly a week ago, July 2nd, but 500 years before, 1505, Luther has his famous encounter with this lightning storm. So he had just started law school, 
and he had traveled back home because he wasn't really sure if this is what his calling was in life, if he would use those types of terms at that point, probably not. But he really didn't want to go to law school. He didn't want to be a lawyer, but his father pressured him into doing that. So he started this, and then within a very short amount of time, he was doubting whether this is what he wanted to do. So he goes back home. He takes a leave from school. He has some conversations with his parents. His father was a, a very mean person and uh, did not like his decision to leave law school, and so he was going to go back and continue back in law school. But on his way, as he's, uh, it's pictured here, he's actually on a horse, but uh, the pictures we have usually of him not on a horse. So he's coming back on a horse, and he encounters this lightning storm, and a huge lightning bolt strikes just a few feet from him, and he is afraid that he's going to die. And so he prays, not to Mary, prays to Mary's mother, who is Anne. Her name is Anna. So Anna and Caiaphas are the parents of Mary, and this is very common within the medieval tradition, is to invoke saints, and there's a lot of reasons why that's the case we don't have time to get into, but he invokes Saint Anne, and he says, Saint Anne, because she is the patron of monks. That's the reason why he calls for her. And he says, I'm going to become a monk because he's afraid for his life and he thinks the only thing that can guarantee my own existence outside of living here on earth is to become a monk. And I should step back for a second. You have the average Christians, which are us. You know, we're 90 to 95% of the population. We live basically according to the Ten Commandments. That's the idea in the medieval world. So we know kind of the basic things. We're not supposed to kill people or commit adultery or do things like that. But you have the super-Christians who are the monks and the nuns. So they live apart from society. Their job is to pray for us sinners. And basically, they are interceding for us to God for the community. And so he is going to do this and be one of these super-Christians. They get to live by things like the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. So they have a bigger capacity for religion than the regular people like us. That's the idea. So Luther is going to become one of these super-Christians because that's the only way to really guarantee eternal life in his head. So this is 1505. He does that. And then everything is going to change after that. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of dates. I'm not expecting you to have that memorized. I mentioned there would be a quiz later this morning, but it'll be from last week's material, not this week's material. So don't worry about this, you'll have a slide, but I just want to real quickly go through some different parts of Luther's life. That's 1505 when that happens, it's July. He'd started law school in January. And here's one of the things that I'm always fascinated with. So he has this encounter, and within two weeks, notice it happens July 2nd, July 17th, he enters the monastery. And when you enter a monastery... Your whole world ends. You go and you'll knock on the door and you'll say, I want to become a monk. And they already have a tradition. They basically come to you and say, we don't want you. Go away. And it begins this whole interaction. It's like uh, going to a market in the Middle East and you're, you're bargaining. And it's going back and forth, back and forth. You have to stay there at night by yourself. And then eventually, after a few days, perhaps they'll let you in, but only as a novice. And they're just trying to figure out, do you have what it takes to be a monk? You have to get rid of all of your possessions. And so Luther does that. He goes 
from having all the things that he would normally have within two weeks. He sells or gives away everything that he owns, including his prized lute. He was, uh, apart from theology, his favorite subject was music. It always had been music. And he, as a monk, would have to, actually as a, as a student, he would have to sing for his food. You have to sing for your supper. So that was common. It wasn't just a tradition. This is what they literally did. So he loved music. He had to give away his lute. All of his books he had to give away or sell. All of his clothes, everything he had. So when he goes and becomes a monk, he literally has no possessions. And for the rest of his life, the expectation is that he will own nothing. Not one thing. That's right. Nothing. No jewelry. No books. Nothing. That is the tradition. And he throws a party the night before he becomes a monk. And he says this, which I absolutely love. You see me today, but never again. Boy, was he wrong. (laughs) But he was fully convinced this was it. This was the last time, and it literally is the case. He would probably never see his friends again. He would probably never see his parents again. Of course, his parents aren't at this party because his decision to become a monk jeopardizes his relationship, basically ends his relationship with his father. They're going to later have some reconciliation after Luther leaves being a monk, but their relationship is done. He'll never see his friends again, never see his family again. He'll never own anything again. His life is over. And he's just going to retreat into this monastery and no one will ever remember that he ever existed. And yet, within a few years, not at this one, but another monastery, within a few years, so this happens in 1505, I should say, well, 20 years later, I mean, a lot of time has passed, 20 years later, he's now living in a monastery again, but guess what? He's living in a monastery with his wife. And he owns it. It was given by Frederick. I mentioned Frederick, his Lord Protector, was very happy when Luther decided to marry because it was just another way of guaranteeing that he was going to be here and not be anywhere else. So because Luther's theology had ended all of the monks and nuns living in convents and monasteries, at least around the area of Wittenberg, it was given to him as a wedding present. So imagine that you have a celibate monk is going to marry a celibate nun, And when they do so, their wedding present is an entire monastery. (laughs) So I visited this monastery and watched it. It's beautiful. It's hundreds of rooms, and this is their present. It's a very surreal experience, but that's Luther there. So Luther, when he becomes a monk, he becomes the best darn monk that had ever existed. So he was a fastidious person. He was meticulous. Uh, He suffered deeply from depression throughout his life and especially later toward his life as he got older, he suffered from depression pretty regularly. And he would go into his room, he would crash, he would just stay in there for several days on end. He couldn't get out of bed. Um, He would not be able to eat. Uh, He would have difficulties interacting with others, staying focused. These are the types of things that he suffered through with depression. Uh, On top of that, he was... Uh, always fearful that God was going to take him out. And he was fearful that he never had enough in life, that he could never please God enough. And so he would regularly make confessions. His uh, father confessor was Johann von Staupitz. 
And Luther would come to Stoppitz and say, you know, I'm repenting of this. And Stoppitz eventually got to the point where he said, listen, stop coming. These are ridiculous sins. If you're going to sin, if you're going to repent something, go sin, make a big sin. Like, go kill somebody and come back. Because I'm, I'm tired of listening to these little things. And so Luther was always just coming with these types of things. And this, this really impacted Luther's own theology. And so there's different quotes. You can find all kinds of quotes attributed to Luther. Probably he said most of them. This is, he was just an outrageous figure who said things that are just ridiculous. But uh, he would talk about sin boldly. And this is what he would say to people in his churches when he would preach and teach is, you know, he took this from Stoppitz. If you're going to sin, make it the biggest dead gum sin you've ever had. And then when you come back, you'll have real repentance. But don't give me any of these pansy sins that you keep coming back with me about. So, his uh, father confessor, Stalpitz, notices that he's a very smart person. So Luther is a very smart person. And he pushes him to become a professor. Now remember, in addition to, I've already mentioned too, when you become a monk, lifelong celibacy. Lifelong poverty. And the third component, lifelong obedience to your spiritual father. You have to do whatever your spiritual father tells you to do. And so his spiritual father, Stalpitz, tells him that he is going to become a professor. And so that's what Luther has to do. Luther says, it's going to kill me. I hate this stuff. I don't want to do this. Well, it doesn't matter. He has to do it. And so he goes through, and I put here all the different degrees that he has to get. And Love another time to talk about the way the medieval worked in terms of education, but we won't. We'll just go through this. He gets all of the degrees. October 18th, 1512, he receives his Doctor of Theology. He's given two Bibles. He's given a silver ring. He's given a beret, the famous beret that he wears. So all of these things are given to him when he receives his doctorate. It's a very illustrious occasion. And... He takes this very seriously, and this is why Luther does what he does for the rest of his life, because when he receives his doctorate, that is his vow, that he is going to protect the Catholic Church, he's going to protect the theology of the Church. And so this is what he seeks to do for the rest of his life. He graduates one day, the next day he's now a professor at Wittenberg, where he goes to school, and he'll remain there for the rest of his life. He'll leave intermittently. Uh, going on different errands because he becomes very involved in political reconciliations, but he's never allowed to leave Germany proper because he would have been killed if he would have gone outside the protection of one of these Lutheran lords. Yes, ma'am. What happened in Rome? Well, a lot happened in Rome, but he goes when several years uh, after he enters the monastery and he sees some discrepancies between what he had thought Rome should be like. Because remember, Rome is the center of the world. Jerusalem's not the center of the world. Rome is the center of the world. And he had romanticized what Rome would be like, and he goes there, and it is shattered. His idealization is destroyed. And so I think that was, and he talks about this, this is an important part of his formation, intellectually. So, you're welcome series of events taking place after this. Well, I'll just kind of, let me see. Just mention a couple of things here. Just for the sake of time, there's so much, so much to be said, but here's, here's the reality. Luther was in the midst of huge changes taking place. 
and he had no idea what was really taking place in the larger scheme of things. Now, we can look back hundreds of years later and see where he fits, and it's absolutely amazing. But here's just one little example. We know him. The reason why we're here this morning is because 500 years ago, there was this publication of the 95 Theses. So October 31st, 1517. October 31st is not a... Uh, it, the reason why it's that date is because that's a day of All Souls Day. And so on the Catholic calendar, it's not because it's Halloween. But it just happens to be that. But it's All Souls, All Souls Day, and this is when he publicizes this document. Uh, what he does in the 95 Theses is really nothing at all of what we kind of associate with Luther. He's not attacking the Catholic Church. He's simply calling into question specific ideas, which is his job as a doctorate in theology. He is required by law to be engaging ideas. This is what we do as scholars, is we have ideas and we're engaging those ideas, questioning ideas. So he does that, not thinking that he's going to start a revolution, God forbid. He has no desire to do such a thing. But he does this, and what's fascinating is there's no, he had no idea of knowing the, the repercussions of this. But just let me paint a picture real quickly. We have Rome, and if you've been to Rome before, you've gone to... St. Peter's Basilica, well, that's new. That's only 500 years old. Before that time, when Luther is, right when he's writing these 95 theses, there is old St. Peter's Basilica, which is in absolute disarray. It is literally falling down on pilgrims as they're coming from all over the world, and it has to be destroyed and rebuilt because it is hazardous to health. There is a pope who wants to do that, but he needs a lot of money in order to make these changes. Now, he's a person who likes to use a lot of money. There's another person who wants to pay for a lot of these changes. He's an archbishop. And he says, okay, I'm going to give you, pope, a lot of money so you can rebuild this church. We have to have a nice church because this is the source of all the pilgrimage. It's the, the largest church in the world, the most important church. And so the archbishop says, I'm going to give you the money. And he says, but before I give you the money, I need to raise the money. Okay, great. How are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to go to these bankers who just emerged in the 1400s in Germany. And also, I'm going to start selling some indulgences. Great. That money you get from the indulgences and the bankers, then you're going to pay me, and we're going to have this, so we're going to have this beautiful church in Rome. And so this guy, who's going to be selling the indulgences, happens to go right outside of Luther's territory. He cannot come into Wittenberg itself because of his Lord Luther's protector does not want anyone in his area selling indulgences, not for theological reasons, because I mentioned he has more than 19,000 relics. He has four, strayer, uh, four pieces of hair from Mary. He has part of Jesus' beard. He's got all the kinds of relics, 19,000 relics. He doesn't want anyone competing with his relic collection. So that's why he does not let this guy sell indulgences in his territory. But here's the thing. Luther is preaching in the church, even though he's still a monk, and the people in his church are going to visit this guy Tetzel to buy indulgences. Now, what are indulgences? Indulgences are ways that you can pay money to get an official document under the authority of the Pope himself that it remits or it lessens how many days you spend in purgatory. That had been around for hundreds of years. It was nothing new. It sounds very strange, but it made a lot of sense within the medieval world. So Luther enters into this debate not knowing any of these bigger things taking place. And so when he 
starts questioning some things in the 95 Theses, this is automatically sent to the archbishop, and then it's automatically sent to Rome. And then Rome comes down very heavy-handed on this. So we're going to kind of skip past a lot of these different things, but to make a long story short, Luther has 60 days to recant. There are several errors, I think around 40-something errors of his 95 thesis. So, and the thesis is just one sentence, basically. So about 95 sentences, and Rome says about half of those are an error. So you need to say you're wrong on those and everything is fine. This happened all the time, by the way. This is nothing new. Rome is constantly censuring things and then saying, you made errors here, you need to fix those, and people are like, fine, I'll do that. But Luther decides he's not going to do that. He's not going to make any of these changes. And eventually he is going to be excommunicated, and here is the, uh, it's called the bull, uh, which is just this wonderful document to read uh, that's sent out by Rome uh, for his official excommunication because he does he has a 41 points from his 95 theses. But <clears throat> we're going to bypass some of that. And I mentioned the reason why we know Luther is because Luther had the support of the princes, the people who really had power. And so Luther, even though he allows the excommunication from Rome to come, he has the prince who supports him, as well as other rulers who begin supporting him and are persuaded by some of his theology. And so now he's got all of the support that he would ever want. Wittenberg becomes a fully Lutheran town. There's two Catholic churches that are still there today. Guess what? They're just turned into Lutheran churches. Everything else is the same. The university is there, but instead of being Catholic, it becomes a Lutheran university. All of the people who are working there as professors... They're all Catholic. Well, they just become Lutheran. And so over the course of a few short years, the whole city reforms itself to become Lutheran, even though it was Catholic. So Luther is now free to do whatever he wants to do. And this is where the new ideas start seeping in a little bit more, is because he has full protection. He has nothing to fear. He's making a very good living. His life is great. 1520 he does something that's going to greatly impact what we do as Protestants. He writes several books, some of the most influential books, especially uh, these last to the Babylonian captivity of the church and the freedom of a Christian. The Babylonian captivity of the church, he decides that instead of seven sacraments, there should be two, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is why Protestants today have to sacraments. And they, in fact, usually don't call them sacraments. They call them ordinances or something along those lines. So if you like having two instead of seven, you can thank Luther. So he was not the first person to initiate this, but he said it, and then the Lutherans began instituting this, and all other Protestants since then have been doing this. But it's all because he decided in October, you know what, we're just going to get rid of those seven and we have, I'm going to have two now. So many more things that I can mention, but just for the sake of time, we don't. Um, he has a book burning of all of these excommunication letters, which is just, it's just fantastic. And uh, he goes out, and I only realized this when I visited Wittenberg, but when you go there, there's the old city of Wittenberg, but where he actually had the burning was the place where lepers, because lepers still existed at that time in, in Germany, where lepers had to have all of their belongings burnt before they left. 
And so there's just like this added significance of that area that he chooses to burn these books. So this is the end of his time within officially the Catholic Church. He's going to have a series of councils that he's going to attend. He's going to begin translating the Bible into German. He was not the first person to do that. It had been done almost a century before, but his translation became the definitive German translation, which still influences German Bibles today, very much in the same way the King James Bible had become the definitive English translation, not because it was the first one. There had been English Bibles for several hundred years, several hundred, probably 400 years before the King James comes around. But his Bible becomes the the standard. He begins working with lay people. He's writing commentaries. He's writing pamphlets and essays in Latin as well as in German. This stuff is immediately going out to the people, and the people begin having transformations He talks with people about all topics, about marriage, about raising children, not just about theology. He preaches regularly. He teaches regularly. So you can imagine this whole town where he lives in Wittenberg is undergoing a complete transformation in a way that it had never experienced before. He's becoming more and more famous. He is pressured into getting married. This was one of the things that Lutherans were most adamant about. It wasn't just about some theological pie-in-the-sky idea. No, something very practical as people should get married. That was the thinking of these Protestant reformers. Men and women are supposed to be married. They're supposed to have children. They're supposed to raise families. And the idea of clerical celibacy went against this. Gets married in 1525. I mentioned to Catherine of Limbora who was a former nun. After Luther's time, there's going to be constant debate. And even when Luther is still alive, there are questions on what does it mean to really be a Lutheran? And so there are different schools of thought that emerge on what a true Lutheran is. Because as I mentioned, there's never one person who agrees with another person. When it comes to specific leaders, these idea people, You'll see in the next few weeks, like John Calvin or Ulrich Zwingli, these men had a lot of areas of agreement, but many areas of disagreement with Luther and and all of these others. So the Lutheran tradition is going to develop, and just want to put this word protest, protestatio. So protestish, where we have the word Protestant, it comes from a specific time period in 1529, when these German princes are disagreeing with what the Edict of Worms is. And the Edict of Worms is when the Catholic Church, not just the Catholic Church, but really the politics of the day, demanded that Luther be captured and that he be arrested and all of his work burned. So there was a group of Lutheran princes who disagreed with this, and this was the protestation. So this is why we are called Protestants, We are protesting something, and specifically, it's protesting the statement that went out on Luther, that he was a heretic and that he should be brought to justice. So, later on, I mentioned that uh, Luther was a very angry-oriented person, very cantankerous. He was very superstitious, very judgmental, very hateful in many ways toward lots of groups, And toward his later life, he became extremely hateful toward Jews. So one of the last books that he wrote was called On the Jews and Their Lies. That's the title, On the Jews and Their Lies. And I won't 
even give you quotations from the book because it is a recipe for disaster. It's not surprising that Hitler goes back to Luther's book on the Jews and their lies and finds inspiration in that. And so this is the result of that. We're not going to blame Luther for the Holocaust, but he certainly is complicit in continuing this hatred of Jewish people, of their ideas, just of their very existence. Now, I could explain a lot of reasons why Luther thinks this. This is very much part of the tradition. Europe, Medieval Europe is highly anti-Semitic, and we could go into great detail about all the ways that's the case. Luther is part of the culture. He also is thinking it's the end of the world. And so Luther thought because you know, he had this really naive assumption that he was ushering in the truth in this horrible age of decadence and error and everything else, and that Jesus was going to return during his lifetime. By the way, just a, a preview of church history is every generation of Christians has thought that it's the last days. Every one. Every one. So what we're experiencing today is nothing new. Every generation has said that, and they can give all their reasons, all their biblical verses, and so forth. And so for Luther's day, there were a couple of things going on. One is that there was a constant fear, an ongoing fear, that the Muslims, and this is the Ottoman Turks, were going to take over Europe. Now, the reason why is because the Ottomans were moving west. They had just won a very famous battle in Vienna. In Vienna. Luther's in Germany. And so they can read the tea leaves of the time and know that this Muslim empire is going west and eventually is going to overcome the Western world. Now he's right. That is the truth. That's going to be the case. It's just going to take a little bit longer. So we'll see that in the next century or two, how that's going to happen. But right now, Luther is seeing this and he's expecting this. Another thing that's taking place is because he thinks it's the end of the world, He's expecting that the Jews would turn to Christ. They are not. He thinks that they should be embracing his ideas. They don't care for them in the least. To them, it's the same as what Catholicism offers. It's just more bloodshed, more killing of us, persecuting us, making us leave and go to another land. So why would we care about what you have to say? So this infuriates him, and he gets much more hardened, much more hateful, toward Judaism and Jews. And that is just one aspect of this absolute frailty, the, the flaws and all of Luther. A lot more could be said and should be said about Luther and his views on Judaism. But it wasn't just that. It was on many, many other things as well. So as much as we want to celebrate Luther, and there are many things to celebrate from his life, there are also many things that we need to absolutely be scandalized over, and to reject. So, after Luther's time, you have the world that's really dividing among Protestants and different forms, uh, different forms of Protestants as well as Catholics. And unfortunately, there's going to be constant bloodshed. Some of the most bloody battles in European history are going to take place as Protestants fight each other as well as as Protestants fight Catholics. Lutheranism is going to expand, and so first it takes place in these reformations in the early 1500s, all across really Western Europe and Northern Europe, and then it's going to take a little longer, a few hundred years, before 
German theology or Lutheran theology is going to make its way into the New World, and there it's going to be very influential, places here like North America. And then finally today, the Lutheran church actually is growing tremendously, but the majority of the growth is taking place in Asia and Africa, some parts of Latin America, but really Africa is the main place where this Lutheran tradition continues on, and we see the legacy of Martin Luther. Just want to end with these two types of things here, this one slide here and then one following. But here are some of these main Lutheran differences that are going to be Protestant differences. Questions over the nature of the sacraments. I mentioned Luther goes from seven to two. Priestly marriage, monasticism and the vows that we take, papal supremacy, saints, relics, pilgrimages, good works, and so forth. So this is some of the theology, which I'm sure it will be talked about in the weeks to come. So I didn't want to focus on this because I assume it's going to be covered more. But these are some of the, the ideas that Luther would have shared with other reformers. And then the last, I'm just going to, sorry, I have to skip over some stuff. But here's the last thing, is when it comes to the Lutheran tradition, what we know about Luther and the legacy that he's left. So here's some distinctives over there. The preaching of the word. So that becomes a central part of the Lutheran tradition. Before then, it would have been the Lord's Supper. That would have been the central feature. I can't talk about the theology of the cross now. Justification by faith alone. Uh, that was nothing new. Christians have been teaching that for hundreds of years, but that becomes something yoked to Luther's theology. Law versus gospel, and some of the other things that I mentioned, but the confessions are over there on the right. But here's the thing we'll just kind of end with Luther is his ideas, even though we associate so many wonderful things, he was the first new man, he was the first modern man, all of these types of things, those are really idealistic ideas. He was a fallen man, he was a human, he was deeply flawed in many ways. He shares all of the features of humanity. He has moments of brilliance, moments of great generosity, of loveliness. He was very caring and protective of those who were close to him. At the same time, he was very resentful, very hateful toward other groups that disagreed with him or that he disagreed with. In terms of his theology, the reason why it became so powerful is because he had the full protection of the state. If he did not have the protection of the state, of the political leaders, then we would not be here as we are today, at least not in the same way. So he has all of the protection of those who have authority, the authority to go to war, the authority to make laws. All of them supported him, and that strengthened his theology. He also had the support of friends. He had a whole community that's going to be transformed, and this will be helpful to think about in the weeks to come, because Zwingli is going to experience the same thing. He's just going to be in a different town. He's going to be in Zurich. Calvin is going to have a similar thing. He's just going to be in Geneva. But all of them are using the same playbook. They have all of the political authority. All of these people are supporting them. And they're able to make these changes in a way that never had been happening like this before because no one had all of the support. So anyway, I'm going to end there. There's many, many things I would love to say about Luther, but uh, I'll stop. Thanks for uh, your patience. And uh, 
So I hope you have a great rest of the week and that you enjoy the rest of the series here. So thanks again.